0: The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Haki Reitman. We're continuing our conversation with my friend Dr. Bankle Johnson from the University of Maryland, who is one of the world's authorities on the brain and addiction and so much more. Paul, welcome to our show. Thank you
0: for having me on your show. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to our discussion this
1: afternoon. I noticed on your, uh, your fascinating website, Bencolejohnson.com. you're quite a writer, and you write a lot of stories and everything, but you also take note of certain uh, news stories going on. Um, I'd like to get your comments on the opioid crisis and the recent emergency that was declared about it?
0: Well, as you know, the opioid crisis is upon us and it seems to be deeply rather than getting any better. And for the first time, um, the lifespan of individuals in the United States is decreasing. And that tells you that it's a powerful; it's producing a powerful toll in the economy, and this is going to be a toll that must be borne by our health system. But there are many reasons why this has happened. But one of the myths to disc- to really dispel is that this is not a simple phenomenon because people are bringing more drugs into the United States. That's probably true, but this is a crisis. I think primarily created because. Doctors could treat pain very well. They were being told they weren't given enough pain treatment and pain medication, to the point where now doctors were over-prescribing pain medication and the number of people who were affected has mushroomed. You know, I can give you a very simple example. I, I was in a hospital, unfortunately, about a year ago. I had a chest infection. And I was given some oxycodone tablets to take to reduce my cough. And even when I left and I was given my discharge prescription, I was given 60 tablets of oxycodone. We need 60 tablets of oxycodone. But the protocols were I got 60 tablets of oxycodone. Now, if I took those oxy- I, as soon as I got home and I, my, my, my wife opened the packet and she saw all these oxycodone tablets, she did the smart thing. She just opened up the, 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 the loo and then she dumped. Or practically all of them in them, and, and that was it. But you can imagine if you had those sitting on your shelf, and now you have something else happened. Well, here's now some oxycodone for something else. And now here's now continuous oxycodone. Now um, your family now has access to it. Um, Lord forbid, your kids have access to it. So there are so many of these tablets that were being dispensed that the level of addiction was being picked up. The second point was, I think, a lack of good medical training. You know, if you are in ed- almost any university in the United States, I always tease and sometimes gets me into trouble, you know, but, you know, we had a sort of Ebola crisis in the United States, and we all had to stop to learn about Ebola and how to detect cases, etc. It took probably a week to Month of most doctors' time to get up to speed. Well, where were all the cases? Yet, when you go to medical school, you get probably two weeks of, treat, uh, of uh, work and help on learning how to treat pain. You get a couple of weeks of addiction, and no one's teaching you how to deal with the opioid crisis, yet it's what's killing 64 to 65,000 Americans. So, in a sense, the medical system and the medical curricula move very slowly and are not responsive in the way to helping young doctors learn how to treat pain and addiction better.
1: And, you know, I consider, as you know, pain a neurodiversity and that our neuroplasticity changes the wiring in your brain as you go. Um, American medical schools and residencies give very little training for pain, for autism, for Alzheimer's. It just isn't unless you're sub-sub-sub-specialized. Um, the other thing I would just want to mention is uh, that the, the the other elephant in the room is, I remember when Oxycontin first came out, and Oxycodone and everything, the, um, the drug rep was saying that it's Unlike Percodan or Percocet, it's not addictive. It doesn't give you a buzz. You don't have to worry about that. You just, and I was always of the ilk that I would educate the patient, like before I did arthroscopic surgery. I'm going to give you a cryocuff. You're going to come in the day after the surgery. You're going to be walking. I'm going to give you maybe three painkillers, but I don't think you'll need them. And I put all the positive things in. Some of my partners thought I was a little bit draconian that way, but I'd rather have the patient call me because you're not supposed to have pain, you know, yeah. and so forth. So, at the time I was boxing, and I was down the gym in Miami, down at the old Fifth Street Gym, and uh, a lot of times some of the fighters, you know, many of them have been in and out of jail, and they're all nice in the gym, but you know, they've, they've been around. And they're trying to hustle. So, hey, doc, they would come up, can I have a perk a day and my back is hurting? I said, come on, you know better. I'm not going to do anything like that. So one day, after the drug reps are around and everything, and you can't get a buzz from this, and it's just give it every 12 hours, I'm down the gym, and one of the usual suspects comes up and says, hey, Hacky, you know, my back's really hurting. Uh, Can you get me some oxycodone? And I said, uh, you know I'm not going to do that. And I said, but by the way, the drug rep told me that you don't get a buzz out of that and it doesn't get you high and it's not really like that. And he said, well, you asked a drug rep why I'm getting $5 for a Percodan and 10 bucks for an oxycodone. <laughs> <laughs> and I notified the drug company and I tried to get through because you know, I was very idealistic about it, and I thought maybe it was an honest mistake. But the fact of the matter is these, as you well point out, these prescriptions for 60 strong painkillers, or 90, or whatever. It's...
0: They're unnecessary, and that, but, but people are following protocol. And I think, you know, one of the important aspects of pain management is everybody thinks that pain is simply a sensation. Pain is very complex. And it's represented in most of us um, in the parts of our brain that are also associated with mood regulation. And that's why various people have various levels and thresholds of appreciation of pain. And therefore, the treatment of pain needs to be more, I would say, more complex. Not everybody requires an opiate because they have pain. Some people may require behavioral treatment. Some people may benefit from talk therapy. Some people may benefit from yoga. Some people will benefit from electrical stimulation. Some people will have various combinations, including a medicine. But to simply have an opiate narcotic as your only armamentarium to treat someone with pain is pretty poor treatment of pain, indeed. And patients don't tend to be satisfied by that approach either.
1: Can you talk about some of the uh, organic or biological pathways that are expressed when one is taught breathing exercises for pain, which seem to help quite a bit?
0: Well, most of the breathing exercises are associated with reducing stimulation through, through uh, suppression of activity and activation of more vagal stimuli, so that the person feels calmer and the person is able to take deeper breaths, and that actually has an impact on brain neurochemistry. Um, more recently, it has been suggested that deep breathing exercises, etc., do tend to affect also other neurochemicals of the brain, specifically, dopamine, and those produce, if you like, um, because dopamine is also linked and co-released with opioids in the the brain, it actually produces a sort of euphoric effect. Now people don't feel pure euphoria, but they feel relaxation, they feel a reduction in tension, and then the use of either deep breathing exercises or actual physical exercise, riding a bike or being in the gym, might also be important for the modulation of pain and the modulation of addictive processes. And that is actually being studied quite actively now at the National Institutes of Health because the more we can incorporate our understanding of more natural ways to improve our mental health, the better it actually is for everyone to be able to uh, prevent uh, mental illness and mental disease. You know, one of the... Uh, jokes as I came as I told you this morning when I came in, was I said, you know, not many people wake up and say, gosh, what am I going to do for my brain today? How am I going to optimize my brain today and make sure it's in great working order? You know, the same people who would get out of bed and say, gosh, I've got to go for my five-mile run. They never think about, you know, what to do with their brain or what nutrients to, to have. But I think as awareness advances, people will realize, I hope, that having a healthy brain is just perhaps I would even argue more important than many aspects of physical strain because your brain conditions really how your body reacts and how your body can actually help you to understand the world and to appreciate and enjoy the world. So one of the other things is, and I tell this to my residents, and uh, if, 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 if a patient came to you and you are an esteemed psychiatrist, you took out your pen, and you wrote out on your prescription pad, this patient is completely free of all mental disorders, and I declare the patient to be completely sane, logical, and fully responsible, and you signed it, Dr. X. And you gave it to the patient to present to someone at work, maybe they, people are going to laugh at it because they're gonna say, this this sounds ridiculous. Whereas doctors do write notes saying this person is completely free of physical illness, physical pain, and is absolutely able to do their job. So our understanding of this dichotomy between our physical health and mental health is very important. The second piece of this is most people don't think about prevention. especially psychiatrists, psychiatrists think more about mental illness. And I'm beginning to try and work with my own faculty at the University of Melbourne to focus on mental wellness because if you can get people to be able to look after their mental health, regulate their stress, take in the right nutrients, be able to appreciate when they have risk to their mental health and what to do about it long before they become mentally ill, then that is an important step to be able to improve the wellness of the community. And a well community performs better than one that is not very well and that is stressed out.
1: Cole, what is the single most important message in your view that you can give our viewers regarding addiction?
0: The best advice is that if you feel you have a problem with addiction, that you should see your, your, your family practitioner or your doctor. And the reason is, your family practitioner or doctor well, will be able to take a full physical and medical history from you and be able to determine whether you need appropriate treatment. One of the other things we found is that most individuals who have an addiction have all sorts of other disorders that are not being attended to, whether it's their heart, their lungs, with their blood pressure or diabetes. And so getting a good health check is important. The best message for hope is that addictive disorders are treatable and people do get better. And worrying about being stigmatized by going to see your doctor is the wrong worry. It is better to be treated and well than to die of ignorance or to be harmed by ignorance. So it's much better to go to your doc and get the treatment.
1: Does the average doctor know about this stuff?
0: Not as much as they should, to be honest. And I think it's now behoven on a lot of specialists and the National Institutes of Health and also universities who have people who are knowledgeable to spread this knowledge. And also people like you who are spreading this knowledge through the neurodiversity programs that you have. It is very important for that pressure to be put on for people to have public education. Uh, Take for example smoking. You know, before, um, you know, Sir, Sir Richard Dole came out with, with the large epidemiological study. You know, a lot of people smoked. Doctors smoked, and look at how much has been achieved by public awareness of smoking and preventative health. And smoking rates have gone down so much so that tobacco companies have to find different populations to influence and basically different parts of the world to to sell the to sell their sure, tobacco. And the
1: mothers against drunk driving were the men's with the reason that driving drunk became not cool to do. Back when I was growing up, it was cool to drive drunk. Then Mothers Against Drunk Driving came out.
0: It is not cool to drink and drive
1: at all. That's for sure. That's for sure. It's been a pleasure having you here. We've been speaking today with Dr. Bencole Johnson again. Thanks so much for returning. You're terrific. Keep up the great work, and thanks so much for being here at Different Brains.
0: Thank you so much, Hanky, and I admire everything you're doing uh, in neurodiversity, and it's a pleasure to have been on your show. And good luck with everything. You're really doing a stellar job educating the public. Thank you. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.